Let's turn in the Word of God to Hebrews chapter 6 and let us briefly finish the point that I made earlier in our first assembly that there is no prenuptial agreement between the Lord Jesus Christ and His elect, between our Savior and us. Nuptials is a wedding. Prenuptial means that before the wedding an agreement is struck between a rich man marrying a woman that if the marriage ends, she does not get what he owns. She does not have a right to his income. And so it's a protection device to protect rich men from gold diggers and other women from taking advantage of them via marriage. The Lord Jesus Christ did no such thing. He committed himself to an everlasting covenant before the world began. And God in his goodness told us about that covenant or we would not know of it. It's been conveyed to us in writing. Our religion does not, is not based on oral tradition. It's based on the written word of God that tells us about that covenant. We were given to him before the world began, Ephesians chapter 1. He promised eternal life to us before the world began, Titus chapter 1. His purpose and grace was given to us in Christ before the foundation of the world, 2 Timothy chapter 1. And here in Hebrews chapter 6, in order to encourage you as his spouse to cast yourself fully upon him that he will never... Leave us nor forsake us, nor deny us the promises of his everlasting love. He gave us the covenant presented first to Abraham in the way that it was presented here. I would like to start reading in verse 13. For when God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely... Blessing, I will bless thee, and multiplying, I will multiply thee. And so, after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise of justification by the Lord Jesus Christ and a place in heaven. For verily, for men verily swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife. What that means is, whenever there's an argument between men, They take an oath. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I promise I'm telling you the truth, is the way that it could be formed in order to convince another party that you mean and intend to keep what you have promised. And the Lord did that. See, there's strife sometimes between men. And so you do contracts or you form covenants or take oaths in order to get rid of that strife. And the way you do it is by appealing to something higher than yourself. To say, I promise, is one thing. But because we're all liars, to say, I promise, doesn't mean a whole lot. So, in our weddings, and in other formal covenants that we make, in church membership, you know, we take the name of Jesus Christ, we take the name of God, and we say before God and these witnesses, I promise to be such and such kind of a spouse. And it's to end strife, and it's to add security to the other parties to the arrangement or relationship. And that's what verse 16 is meaning when it says, Men verily swear by the greater, 
and an oath for confirmation. To appeal to something higher than yourself confirms your word, so it puts to rest any conflict or fear that a person might have that you're not going to keep your word. So how does God do that? Well, he cannot swear by a greater. God can't swear by anything greater than himself, so he swore by himself. And it told us that in verse 13 already. Now verse 17, wherein God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath. My brethren, our God, through Jesus Christ our Lord, was very willing to more abundantly give us the a promise and to confirm that promise that we might be fully secured in the immutability of his counsel. His counsel was his eternal covenant to save his elect through Jesus Christ their Lord. He put us in Christ. He charged Christ with us to give us eternal life. And in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son who fulfilled that covenant. We're the heirs of that covenant. And it's an immutable covenant. Covenant. When something is immutable, mutable means to change. Immutable means it's unchangeable. God's covenant is unchangeable. And that should be enough for us. But our loving husband and his father wanted to bless us beyond the promise, beyond the immutability of his covenant, with an oath. Amen. Isn't that incredible? Forget a prenuptial agreement. We need to go to the other ditch, if you'll allow me to use that word, of God's extreme measures to comfort us with the security of our everlasting life. When you are on your deathbed, you should remember these things. He is all together lovely. And the word of His promise and the immutability of His Father's arranged marriage with us was insufficient in their opinion for the comfort of your soul, so God swore with an oath. That is incredible. That by two immutable things, in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation, who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us, A number in this church just saw a person depart this life. Do you have the hope of eternal life? God has given you consolation so that you can run to it and embrace consolation to be fully comforted and strengthened in the fact that when your day comes and your moment comes to be absent from the body, you will be present with the Lord. And he did it by a couple of immutable things. His counsel is immutable, but he promised... And he cannot lie, Titus 1-2. And then he swore with an oath. Because he wants to assure you. When someone, when we come to a marriage vow with another person, we like that promise. I promise. Before God, I promise. Before these witnesses, I promise. I will love you. For better, for worse, for richer, for poor. We, we try to put some conditions in there that might arise in the future but i promise that i will we sign a marriage covenant in our church we sign a marriage covenant we sign a marriage license and we put our names to it and the lord gave us an oath right have you fled to him for refuge 
have you fled to him for refuge? Do you know how to run to the Lord Jesus Christ and fall at his feet? And take him by his feet and say, Lord, I believe that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And without thee and outside of thee there is no hope for my salvation. The only way you'd ever run is by the grace of God. But you better run. Because if you don't run for refuge there, and to find that refuge in Christ, you're outside of this passage. You're not like Abraham your father, because what he did, he did by faith. He trusted and believed God. He left Ur of the Chaldees to go into the land of Canaan that was a type of heaven for him and for us. Have you run to Christ for refuge? Have you believed on Him? Have you told Him that He is the adorable, glorious Son of God and your only Savior and that you will live for Him with the rest of your life? Have you run to Him for refuge? He'll deliver you from the fear of death. This same book of Hebrews tells us in chapter 2, whereby many are held in bondage through that fear and religious systems that keep that fear there to extract the last farthing from their membership. Which hope we have as an anchor of the soul. There's times coming, my brethren, it's going to come for me and it's going to come for you, in which we're going to be on a stormy sea. You may get a disease that with just a little bit of research, you can find that your days are numbered. That's a stormy sea. But on that stormy sea, you may let down an anchor that will find a solid place to rest and hold your heart and soul and mind still if you remember things like this. That God, who cannot lie, promised before the world began and his eternal counsel was set on saving you. And then he added to that an oath so that you could run for refuge to him. A refuge is a place to hide where you can hide from fear, where you can hide from doubt, and where you can hold up the shield of faith of the promises of God and quench all the fiery darts of doubt of the devil. We have it as an anchor of our soul, and it's where we can run and lay hold of this hope, and it's to console us. God wants to console you and comfort you that there is more than just Ephesians chapter 1. Now, Ephesians chapter 1 is glorious, but that's his everlasting counsel. There's an oath, and he made it to Abraham. And we are like Abraham when we believe by faith. And it tells us in verse 19 that that hope is an anchor of the soul. It's sure and steadfast, and it entereth into that within the veil, whither the forerunner is entered for us. And do you know what a forerunner means? There's runners. It's not a Toyota product. A forerunner is someone who went before us and is already there, and we're going to be coming after. And he's already entered into it because God promised him as well. That if he would lay down his life and commend his soul and spirit by obedience into the hands of God, he would be given pleasures forevermore at God's right hand. And so are we. A prenuptial. Oh no. There's a pre-covenant and a pre-oath and a pre-council before our wedding in a practical way when we run to him and embrace him as our Lord and our Savior. Lord, have mercy upon us and bless us to do that. When we think of a great man as a great husband and a great spouse. It is a blessing to think of that man having a loving, wise, and powerful father behind him 
So that when you marry the one man, the younger, the son, you're actually getting two men with different offices and relationships to you. You know, I've mentioned something about getting the inheritance. And I, I took you to Colossians chapter 3 where it said, when you go to work tomorrow and you do it heartily as unto the Lord, you don't do it to please men because they can only give you a tiny little bump in your paycheck, but the Lord can give you the reward of the inheritance. But now in order for you to get an inheritance, I want to, I want to make the drama even better of the glory of Christ. To get an inheritance, your husband's father has to have died. Right? How can you get the inheritance? A, a last will and testament is of no force while a man's alive. He has to die in order for you to have the estate that was his, that he bequeathed to his son to whom you are married. And you know, if we were to tell a drama like that about a very rich man with a huge inheritance, and there's one being talked about right now, but I'm not even going to name names because I don't want to distract you. If we were to think about that, that would be a wonderful thing. That a very rich man with a huge estate that is being transferred to him would choose an ugly duckling and marry her and commit himself to her in the ways that I have described. But it's better than that. We get the inheritance and the living father. Can you believe that? Well, how can he give the inheritance and transfer the estate by the death of his son whom he raised from the dead? This is the story of the gospel, and in every measure of it, and in every feature and trait and aspect of it, it is incredibly superior to any drama ever written or devised on earth. And the, the glory is all to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the object of the Father's love, and He has arranged our marriage. We get the Father and the inheritance. Jesus would put it this way, And I give unto them eternal life, speaking of His spouse, under the metaphor of sheep in John 10. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. Great so far, but it gets better in the next verse. Verse 29, My Father, which gave them me, is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. If you were to marry a rich man who had perfect moral character and all economic ability and occupational ability and observational ability and achievements, that is one good thing. And he brings an inheritance. But what if you get his father still living who loved you and picked you for his son and has all power in heaven and earth? That is what we have. That is what we have in the gospel. It tells us about it. We've always had it. Your little life means so little in the big scheme of things. We were given to Christ before the world began. We were made His wife in eternity past. But we've been told about it. What if He just let it happen? What if He just did it? That would be stupendously wonderful. But He's told us about it. These are the fat things. These are the things that should cause us to delight in fatness as we hear about them. There's no drama like this ever. These little romance novels that women waste their time on, which is equal to and just as stupid and dysfunctional and destructive as men looking at porn. They're equal. It's garbage. It's sinful. It's wicked. It's illusionary. It's delusional. And it's destructive. And they call that romance novels? I'll tell you about romance. It's the everlasting love of God for His people. 
and the arranged marriage of his darling son, Jesus Christ, to the ugly ducklings of the universe, sinful wretches like you and me. And he's exalted us to be joint heirs with Jesus Christ, to inherit everything that God is and has forever and ever. And he's given promises in writing, and he's, made, he's taken oaths, and he's put it in covenant form. It's incredible. And I don't know how to tell you about it. It frustrates me to no end. You sit there like pews. And I'm like a pew. Why are we so cold? Lord, stir us up by your Spirit to realize the incredible riches of his goodness in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. Ephesians chapter 2, about verse 7. I just, oh, I was telling someone at break time, I don't want the phone to ring. I don't want the email to ding. I don't want Sherry to come in my office. I just want him to show me something else because it just, it's too good. Right. It's too, you know, the inheritance, much of the Bible is about your eternal inheritance. Whether it's Abraham coming into Canaan, Look to the east, look to the west, look to the south and north. To thee I'm going to give all this land. I wasn't talking about that sand over there in the Middle East. He's talking about heaven. Because Hebrews 11 explains it all for us. Right. Acts chapter 7, even a deacon understood that. Because in Acts chapter 7, Stephen said, Abraham didn't get enough property to put the sole of his foot on. Because it was really heaven. The Old Testament, New Testament, heaven. New heavens and a new earth. Is where we're going. I'm preparing a place for you. That's where we're going. But we also get the Father. He didn't go out of existence or die. We don't go to a cemetery to look at the Father that gave us the rich estate. We have the warm embrace of that loving Father. And we are in His hands. And if you think you can be taken out of the hands of Jesus Christ at the moment of your death, you're in the hands of the Father. Right. And He is greater. Do you know what Jesus wanted to tell you about His Father? He is greater than all. Do you know that in eternity Jesus Christ will be subordinate and obedient to to God Almighty? To His Father? But He said, you're in His hands as well. It's a family deal. We get the Father and the Son. How do I tell you? What if the Father has much more than an inheritance? How about affection, wisdom, power, and protection? Does God have things like that to add to the inheritance? He does. The Father has highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name. Amen. And we get the one giving the name and the one with the name. Right. The Father chose you to be his son's bride and gave you to him in proper marriage. If you could get out of your husband's hands, you couldn't get out of his. The Father has prepared an inheritance for Jesus Christ and you from the foundation of the world, right. which he's designed for him and you to enjoy with his blessings and in his presence. Forevermore. We will enjoy God. He will be our God and we shall be His people in the fullest way that you can even grasp those words and it will blow away anything that you're able to grasp now by mere imagination. It's going to be better than that to have God and the Lamb. 
Listen, there are creatures in heaven that are so much greater than we are, an innumerable company of angels, 10,000 times 10,000, and thousands of thousands, and there's four creatures at the end of Revelation chapter 5. And do you know what? When the Lamb is beside God Almighty on His throne, they burst into praise and they sing. Day and night they cease not praising Him. He is our Father and His Son is our Husband. It's a family relationship. We are the sons of God. He's your husband. Have you run to Him for refuge? Have you run to the Father for refuge? Do you love Him like you should? Do you serve Him every day? Are you a good wife? Every man in here wants a good wife. Every man in here wants a doting wife. Every man in here wants a faithful wife. Every man in here wants a serving wife. Are you that kind of a wife to the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, Prince of the kings of the earth? You say, I'm a good wife to my husband. Well, make sure that you reach beyond him and are a good wife to the husband of husbands, the Lord Jesus Christ. What if we meet him? Listen, brethren, I have a strange way of saying some things sometimes. But what if I am telling you something that is half true? When we meet him, and you have wasted any of your time not serving him, or you have flirted with the world, is he righteous to be jealous and angry? Is he righteous to call you his enemy if you're flirting with his enemy? Is he righteous to call you guilty of spiritual adultery? That's what it's called in the Bible. James 4.4 Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that friendship with the world is enmity with God. You want to listen to the world's music, but you don't want to listen to music that praises your husband? Make that make sense to me. What is wrong? How could any music compete with music that honors and glorifies your husband? You say, well, I like the beat. I'm going to get you a ticket. And you can cross the Atlantic and spend the rest of your life in total darkness, enjoying the beat. Every part of our lives, our husband deserves everything that we can give him. What else has he done for us? Is there anything else? I'm just getting started. A few weeks ago, I don't even want to say your name because I don't want you distracted. But we need to make the comparison because the Bible says, Thou art fairer than the children of men. And he is the chiefest of 10,000. A little ordinary girl in England got to marry a prince. And it was a big deal. And in some respects, it was worthy of a little bit of attention. The point I would like to make from a little ordinary girl marrying a prince, for nine days they visited Canada, mostly, and the United States. They flew in one jet, and her wardrobe flew in the other jet. 
This little girl has a lot of attendance now. If she ever washes dishes, it's because she wants to. If she ever does her own laundry, it's because she fired somebody or told them to back off and take a day off so she could do the laundry. If she ever vacuums, it's because she chooses to. A man with a large estate and many servants can provide a luxurious lifestyle known only to a few. And there are some on earth. And we've had a little tiny glimpse of one that occurred in England in the last few weeks. A large number of servants, domestic or professional or both, greatly enhance lifestyle. A woman marrying a prince or a king with lots of servants has a great change in her lifestyle and her living. Imagine the thrill of never doing dishes. Listen, there is nothing noble about doing dishes unless you're in a situation where you need to do dishes. Then it's noble. Then you do it with joy as unto the Lord. But listen, if you could have servants that would do the dishes, Lord, bring them to me today. There's nothing noble about that unless it's your lot to do the dishes. Imagine the thrill of never washing clothes, preparing meals, or changing diapers because someone else is doing all those things so that you can apply yourself to higher and nobler causes, especially the attention and doting on your husband. Which is why the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and I chase a short rabbit trail, that a woman that is not married careth for the things of the Lord because she can dedicate, dedicate herself more fully to serving the Lord Jesus Christ without the care of a husband. What a wonderful fairy tale. What a wonderful, incredible drama to think of an ugly duckling, an enemy in a prison with nails grown out like eagle's claws and hair grown out like feathers, that the richest in the universe would come and choose her to be his spouse and to give the inheritance of the entire father's estate to her and to unite her in an everlasting love and to make a permanent covenant with her and to put it in writing and on and on and on that we've done. But there's this little additional thing. There is an unlimited, uncountable number of servants. What are you afraid of? What are you worried about in your life? You have been given domestics. You have been given professional handlers. You have been given professionals that are better than you, greater in power and might than you, to take care of you your entire life. I had a mother, and you're going to endure that for a few weeks from me. I had a mother that taught me when I was a frightened little boy that would wake up with nightmares when I was about four years old. Psalm 34 and verse 7, The angel of the Lord encampeth round about them that fear him, Jonathan, and delivereth them. There is an angel camped in this room. I remember it vividly because I remember the fear vividly. Paul's snoring away on the bunk bed below me. And Johnny's having a nightmare. And he's trying to get a night's sleep while his older brother is petrified of some boogeyman in the closet. And so mommy gets the flashlight and leads Johnny through the house, under furniture, in closets, for the umpteenth time. 
There's no one here except the one you can't see over there in the corner, Psalm 34 and verse 7. Well, do you know what? I got to tell this story in reverse in the last two months. And I told her, when I was a little boy, you told me and now I'm telling you that the angel of the Lord is in this room and he has been charged by your husband and his father to take care of you lest you dash your foot against a stone. And if you will relax and go to sleep in Jesus, you will not drop one inch. Because underneath of the everlasting arms, and there's an innumerable company of angels and they're assigned to us. Do you know what Jesus said to his disciples? about offending one of the little ones that believed in him, their angel doth always behold the face of my Father. If the face of the Father were ever to get a frown on it for one of these little ones that trust in Jesus Christ, ooh, how do I describe it? You don't want to be on the receiving end of the messenger that would come from heaven that saw a frown cross the face of Almighty God because you messed with one of his little ones. What am I trying to say to you? I'm trying to say turn to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. I read about a beggar in Scripture named Lazarus. Not the brother of Mary and Martha. This is the Luke 16 Lazarus. All his friends and family could do for him was to come and lay him at the gate of a rich man who fared sumptuously every day in hopes that he might get some scraps from the rich man's table. The dogs came and licked his sores. I'm not the storyteller. I don't know how to be one. The Bible's the great drama. And Jesus told this story. A beggar. Dogs licking his sores. Is that an ugly duckling? Is that the bottom end of humanity? But I want you to know something. He had domestics and professionals. A sign with the God of heaven that did not let anything serious happen to him. You say, well, that sounds pretty serious to me. Listen, bring the dogs Bring the dogs and I'll make the sores for them to lick if you will get me that chariot ride that Lazarus got. That is one fair trade. A few years here, at worst, of a few sores and a few hungry nights with dogs licking, but then a ride into eternal glory to be with the God of heaven and his son Jesus Christ. How did he get there? It tells us he was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 7, Of the angels he saith, Who maketh his angels spirits. Angels are spirits. They don't have a body. They don't have bones and flesh and blood. They're spirits. This is what the Bible says about angels and the The point that's being made here is what the Bible says about angels is far inferior to what the Bible says about 
Jesus our Lord, our husband. Of the angels, he saith, who maketh his angels spirits, is the quotation from the Old Testament in Psalm 104, and his ministers a flame of fire. They are his servants. That's why they're called ministers. But notice, in verse 8 it says, But unto the Son, he saith. That's, that's a huge contrast there that you're supposed to rejoice in. The angels are pretty great creatures. And they're spirit beings that can go right through that wall and travel incredible distances with hardly any use, expense of time. But they're just servants, ministers. And they're fiery ministers. They're, they're fiery servants. And he has said in the sixth verse, let all the angels of God worship him. There is no disunity on the staff. The Prince of Glory has complete control of all domestics, professionals, and handlers. And they're in total agreement. And they stand ready to do anything that he would bid them to do. And they worship him. They worship our husband. These creatures that are greater than you worship our husband. And then he tells us this about them. Verse 14, same chapter, Hebrews 1. Are they not all ministering spirits? Aren't all those angels servants that are spirits? That's what a ministering spirit is. Ministering means to serve. Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister or to serve for them who shall be heirs of salvation? If you read the paper or the internet and see Kate Middleton with a whole new lifestyle, forget it. It's nothing. You have angels that don't travel at 700 miles per hour. You have angels that can travel from the presence of God to your presence whilst you are a-speaking. Daniel chapter 9 uses that terminology. They're your servants. The angel of the Lord encampeth round about them that fear him and delivereth them. And angels carry Lazarus into Abraham's bosom. He shall give his angels charge over thee and concerning thee, lest thou dash thy foot against a stone, whether you are T-boned in a truck or you are on a deathbed from Alzheimer's disease. He will give his angels charge over thee. You will not drop one inch. The greatest and mightiest beings that we know of created by God are our servants. What an incredible additional blessing. The inheritance comes to us, and the Father that gave the inheritance is still ours, and He's given a charge to His angels. And yes, I told a woman recently that they had been assigned to take care of her, and they could do much better than Dad, Paul, Ruth, and me. You have nothing to fear in life, they protect you. You have nothing to fear in death, they take you home to be with your husband and his father. Satan rightly applied Psalm 91 to the Lord Jesus, but it also applies to those that are his. A poor man might have a servant or two according to Proverbs chapter 12, but how many do you have? Could they handle a nuclear war to protect you? 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. Our church has an innumerable company of angels. 
When the Bible says it's innumerable, I get a nice, comfortable feeling from that word. When the Lord says that, when He, when he used 10,000 times 10,000, which is 100 million, in another place. You know all these things. I know that. You know all about the angels, don't you? And that's why you live a life totally dedicated to Jesus Christ because your knowledge of the angels and the inheritance and the Father living and the perfect moral character and the everlasting love for you has changed your life. Or could you do a little bit better? I know what every one of you men want for a wife. Are you that kind of a wife to the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you always speaking His praise? Are you always telling Him you love Him? Are you doting on Him? And are you serving Him? Is He the central theme of your life? The preeminent object of your affection and your attention? Do you love to consider these little details of things that you already know that I'm trying to organize in a way for you to lift up the Lord Jesus Christ? Can we be better wives for our husband? We can be. We should be. We must be. The little boy who had nothing to fear was afraid. And his mother, who had nothing to fear, was not afraid. I'm thankful for angels at both ends of our lives. Put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and flee to Him today and find refuge in Him. Lay hold of Him. Delight yourself in fatness. He has wine and milk without price that you cannot buy. It is given freely through his precious word that tells us of things that the world does not have a clue about. The best thing that you could possibly read in any newspaper, whether it be the New York Times or any other paper today, cannot come close to this. Because you know some of these things and because you've heard them before, you may take them for granted and hear my amen in a minute and walk out of this place and not let it change your life. But the Apostle Paul said, the love of Christ constraineth us. He was restrained in and constrained toward one direction, and that was to give his life for a husband that had laid down his life so that Paul might live. And that is how we ought to live If you haven't loved the Lord Jesus Christ like you should have, confess it to Him and repent of it. And let us purpose in our hearts that we will be the faithful, doting, loving, serving, adoring wives that He has chosen us to be and that the Father arranged for Him to have by giving us to Him before the world began. He doesn't ask for 10,000 rivers of oils. He doesn't ask for our firstborn. He wants our praise. He wants our obedience. His commandments are not even grievous. You know, you husbands, I'm sorry, but I know that some of your commandments are grievous and some of mine are grievous, but his are not. Is that a win-win-win situation? It is, and only infinite wisdom could design it because it's for the glory of God and we are going to get enormous pleasure out of it for eternity, though it be for the glory of God and His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the gospel. I wish I knew how to preach it to get you excited and foaming with zeal for Him. It's in the Lord's hands. I've told you the truth. Amen.